Direct from Montreal, Canada, this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone is, well, people that have both served as co-hosts over the years. The one and only Alan Niven, of course, and, and the mighty Steve Brown of Trickster. Or is that the mighty Trickster? We'll find out. Anyway, uh, good day, gentlemen. How are you? Doing fabulous, Mitch and Alan. Great to be back on these uh, lovely airways from sunny New Jersey where it's a balmy 95 degrees and 110% humidity. <laughs> Which is about uh, what we had here. Yeah, it's all good. I don't know how you, I don't know how you deal with it. Yeah, well, it's it's not so bad. You get used to it. And as I've known, you know, Alan, you're in Arizona and I've been out there when it's 115 degrees and people have the nerve to turn around to me and say, but Steve, it's a dry heat. I don't care. So my my line to everybody on days like, you know, this heat wave that we're in here in, uh, in on the East Coast, is I say, I oh, don't worry about it. It's a wet heat. It's a wet heat. It's good. <laughs> well, now, well, you, do re- you do realize Hold on. You do realize that you just came up with the title of your next album, Wet Heat. Uh, or, or a great band name. I, I don't, I'm amazed we, nobody's trademarked that. We got we to gotta look into that, Mitch. I'm going to have to call my trademark attorney because, you know, I've become good at that over the last couple of <laughs> years. And, uh, so yeah, I. I like that, Alan. It, it also might that's, be a great name for a porno. It, it's a porno title. Let's let's be honest. But the, the best is when you go to Arizona and they go, oh, it's 115, but it gets chilly at night. And you go, huh, yeah, sure. Sure it does. Anyway. Anyway, uh, weather aside, we are here to talk about the new Tokyo Motor Fist album, of course, featuring Steve Brown. Uh, and uh, who else do we have on there? We've got Chuck Berge, who has played with, um, well, Billy Joel for the last, what, 15 years, 14 years? Greg Smith, who's yep. done time with Ted Nugent, Rainbow, and Alice Cooper. And, of course, a singer, Ted Poley. And, uh, fun fact, Chuck Berge does appear on the first Bon Jovi album. And so we will discuss who's better, Bon Jovi or Van Halen, later on in the episode. But first, uh, Steve... Uh, Talk to me a little bit about this album, because it, you've, you've now done two. It is one of these Frontier Records um, super groups, but this one's going to tour, right? Of course. Well, you know, that's the one thing I like to say and tell everybody that separates us from most of these other bands. And look, no disrespect to the other bands and projects and, and super groups, yes, because we are de- definitely a super special group. Uh, we actually play gigs, you know, and, and I think that's because we all live on the East coast. So it makes our life a little easier. We actually rehearse together and, uh, you know, for all intent and purposes, this is all, this is our main projects right now. You know, I, I've certainly, uh, surprisingly, this has become my main thing and, and I'm loving every minute of it because I love making music with these guys and the response to the records and wow, here we are in this pandemic that I'm celebrating the release of the second Tokyo Motor Fist record. So, you know, that is a feat in itself. As my uh, label manager, Nick Teeter told me, he said, Steve, you, you should just be proud of the fact that you're releasing a record in 2020. And so, you know, I'm always a positive guy. So I'm looking at the positive end of this. 
we, we put out a great record uh, along with in the middle of this terrible situation that especially America is going through and that the world is going through right now. And I think it's an important record because of the message of positivity and uplifting great rock and roll that it has for everybody. So I think if everybody listens to this new record for the 45 minutes or 47 minutes that it clocks in at, it's going to make your life better. Uh, hopefully it is. And I, I, I think it will. So I'm proud of that fact. So, so will I. Now, uh, talk to me about putting it together, because it, it is very much in-house. It is written by you, produced by you. You know, you, you take to Instagram and you show you in the studio. There, there's a lot of, you know, hands-on. Uh, is it is it dangerous to not have a set of outside ears to produce it and have maybe somebody come in and say, ooh, I would do this differently. I would just to sort of bounce ideas off or is it better just to say, no, this is mine. I'm just going to do it this way. So talk to me about producing it. Well, you know, and Alan knows this as well as I do, you know, look, I've been making records for 30 years now and I have a studio on my house for 27 years. I think I know what I'm doing at this point. And if I don't, I should probably retire or quit. But look, man, all I all I can say is as much as I love performing live and being out on tour, I loved and I fell in love when we made the first Tricks record, which was celebrating the 30th anniversary of 30 years of making records. I fell in love with being in the studio and became obsessed with learning about every detail of making records. I became obsessed. As much as I love the rock stars, Eddie Van Halen and Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley Kiss, you know, whatnot, I fell in love with Mutt Lang and Bruce Fairburn and wanting to learn about making records and what they did to make these phenomenal records. You know, probably much like the way, Alan, you could say this as much as you learned from like George Martin or Jeff Emmerich and, you know, Glenn Johns, the great British producers. I mean, that was what I did as much as I was obsessed with, again, with, you know, Eddie Van Halen. I was that much, you know, in the 90s when I was making records, that was, I was more influenced by, let's say, Mutt Lang than I was by, you know, uh, another hard rock guitar player, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. And and Mutt is by far one of the greatest producers ever. Uh, Alan, I'm going to ask you, when Trickster came out in the in the early 90s, mid 90s, how aware were you of them and and how did you sort of respond to their music? Because they did have a lot of great success. They charted, they went out on a very successful tour with Warrant and Firehouse and so on and so forth. Um, were they part of your purview, part of your scene? Well, let me answer that quickly, but I want to go back uh, to just make a comment about studio. Okay, go for um, it. Start wherever you want. Trick, as far as... As far as tricks that were concerned, um, to be perfectly honest, if my memory has got good recall, it was at a moment when I was starting to think, my God, the highway is beginning to get really full of traffic here, and it's going to be really hard, even harder for the good players, the good singers, the good songwriters to be noticed, because all of fucking record companies had now got their formula going and were maxing out the formula and slowly diluting the whole scene. So it was, it was really tough for me to spend time picking through and going, 
okay, who's 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 really good over here? The, yeah, there's a good, really good guitar player and trickster. There's you know a vocalist over here. I wish somebody could write a song over here. Um, it it was a really crowded period, and I was just happy that you know I got on the freeway when there was no traffic. And as regards being the studio. I just have to agree 100% with, with Stevie. It is the most glorious sandbox that I've ever played in. I just love being in the studio and playing. But as far as self-producing or being in total control, the one thing that I found, um, and, it, and it still holds for me, is there's a particular magic about having one other person to work with, one other person to write a song with, one other person to lay tracks down with, one other person to tell you, no, you fucking suck, go and do it again. Um, there's a particular magic in that. And I mean, you know, we can look across the rock and roll history and go, yeah, there might be a formula there that's worth keeping. You know, the, when you think of the great pairs and duos who produced extraordinary magic. And I mean, you know, top of that list, probably has to be Keith and Mick just for the sheer volume and consistency, even though that consistency kind of went away after Tattoo You. But, you know, what do you think, Steve? Well, I, I totally agree with you. I've always been uh, sort of a team player, but, you know, look, uh, I think that no matter what, when you're making records to have a team and, and Alan, you were in it way before I was, but I say this all the time with, with, you know, the biggest of hearts that I am so thankful. Yes, we trickster, we got onto the freeway late in the game, but listen, we were young and we were just happy to be, you know, I was just happy to start a car, if you know what I mean, and then get a chance to pay the toll and get on the freeway, which we did. But with making records, yeah, it was always great back in the day when to have a producer, our first producer, Bill Ray and his brother, Jim and myself, you know, we, we wrote those songs Well, they took my songs and sort of Desmond Child and Mutt Lang them up and fixed things. But it certainly at an early age was a huge, huge learning process for me. And uh, and then on the second record, working with Jimbo Barton on the second Trickster record here, that was where that was where I really discovered that magic of having somebody who I didn't really need much help with the songs on the second Trickster record, but I wanted someone who was going to sonically take it to another level, and that's what I got. And that was a great period when we were still making records like the old days in great studios where the band was all together. Those days are long gone. And like I said, I have such thankfulness for being able to make records in the old days and be able to make two track analog tape records and, you know, to be able to do it, you know, working in great studios like Sound City, like The Village, like The Enterprise in L.A., Right Track in New York, Battery, The Power Station. I mean, those are things that bands nowadays will never get to do. So those were just magical times. And now, unfortunately, with the way the business is, you just can't work like that. But I'm certainly always into, and I'm never, as much as I'm a one, one, you know, kind of a, 
you know, the chef, if you will, in making my records, whether it's the last two tricks to records, PJ Farley, my bass player has always been my sort of co-producer on all of that. And with Tokyo Motor Fist, I'm always open to anybody's suggestion. And on this new record, you know, as you might know, I brought in, you know, I did bring in some extra ears and some extra help. I brought in Bruno Ravel to help me mix the record. And he did a fantastic job on that. And he really, I have to give him credit for taking the record that was an already, I think, a fantastic record and taking it up a couple notches. And it was because I believed that this record was extra special. And I think, Alan, you know better than I do because you've been doing it a lot longer. You know that when you make records, sometimes you go, you know what? This is better than anything I've done in a long time. This is extra special and needs extra special attention. I think we need to bring, let's say, bring another mixer in and bring a a better mastering engineer in. So that was one of the things that I took away from this, that sometimes, no matter what, when you're doing it all yourself, take a step back and go, you know what? I think we need to take this up another level and bring some other ears in and some other, you know, some other talent to take this to, again, take it to another level. Yeah. And uh, Mayor uh, Applebaum is is a fantastic master. He mastered the uh, second Kiss tribute I did a few years ago. Um, real quick, in terms of the recording process, was there any, all four guys in the studio at the same time, or was it really... You know, let me send you the drum tracks, let me send you my vocal tracks, bounce it back and forth through email. How much of this was an email project and how much of it was a four guys in a studio, sweating, breathing, playing together? Uh, Sad to say, not much of that. You know, the last record, the debut Tokyo Motor Fist record, Chuck did his drum tracks over here because Chuck lives in the next town over. But on this one, he wanted to explore, you know, Chuck, I got to give Chuck Berge credit. You know, he's not a spring chicken. He's not a little kid anymore. And the guy still is so hungry, like a little kid, for learning. So he was able to cut his drum tracks for the first time in his own house, in his own little studio. And he did a fantastic job. And, you know, I got to give him credit because he did a great job cutting the drum tracks, came up with some great parts. Um, And again, In this age that we're in of recording separately and whatnot, I think no matter what, there is that band feel to it because we have that chemistry that we love playing together. We've played probably seven or eight live gigs, which, as you know, for any of these so-called supergroups, that's a miracle unto itself. So, again, that's a uh, tour for them. Well, yeah, that is, that's a world tour. Yeah. Considering, yeah, we've done Europe, we've done Europe. We did, we're on the Monsters of Rock cruise. We were in Belize, I believe when we played one show and we were in, we were somewhere in the Caribbean when we played another show. So yeah, it was sort of a worldwide tour, but um, Greg Smith did his bass track. Greg did his bass tracks in Pennsylvania, but Ted still comes up here to do vocals because Ted very much vocals to me are, in my opinion, the most important part of making these what we call melodic hard rock records. You know, so it's very important that I'm there to be able to produce Ted and get him on the right track. And basically my whole attitude with making these records all along is I don't want to waste anybody's time. So if, Chuck can do great drum tracks at his house and he can deliver what I say. He knows exactly. There's no gray area when we make these records. I say to him, brother, give me your best. 
you know what I want. We're not reinventing the wheel here. And he does that even more. Greg Smith does the same thing with his bass tracks. And when Ted comes here, he, he knows that he's going to walk out of here with, um, he doesn't have to work too hard and we get great work done in a minimal amount of time. And that's what it's all about. You know, maximizing when you're working, you know, because as Billy Crystal said in, uh, in Spinal Tap, mime is money or oh, I mean, time is money. Time is money. Mime is money. But, um, so that's what we do. And all I can say is the results speak for itself. You know, the record has, a magical feel to it and certainly has that band camaraderie, even though we weren't in the room together for most of it. Yeah, no, of course. I, I, I don't think we've actually mentioned the name of the album. It's called Lions, uh, Tokyo Motor Fist Lions. Uh, Alan, I'm going to ask you this and then I'm going to I'm going to seg it into asking Steve a question. But um, you had a replacement guitarist for Great White called Al Petrelli. Now, Al's a great guy, but for some reason in Great White, it didn't work. What was the major issue? And, and obviously, I'm going to lead to Steve and, and how Steve prepares when he goes in for Dennis DeYoung or he goes in for, for Def Leppard. But but talk to me quickly about Al Petrelli and the Great White Experience and where it's sort of disconnected. Well, let's get a little context first. Um, Mark Kendall went down with a ruptured esophagus which basically means he was bleeding out of his throat and ended up in the ICU. Um, so it was an immediate emergency. We were in the middle of a Scorpions tour and I had to find somebody who at the very least could stand on the stage and go through three chords that were approximate to the song. And God bless Al, I called Al and spoke to him and I said, listen, do you think that you can get a handle on the material quickly? And he said, with great East Coast braggadocio, I'll have it down by the time I'm off the plane. And I went, well, get on the fucking plane and get here fast because we're desperate and thank you for coming. And so Al gets off the plane. By the time Kendall came back, Al was still struggling a little bit. But I think part of that was he was thrown in the deep end. He had no time to prepare. He was incredibly brave to put his guitar on and say, I'll handle it, guys. And I think that he found the material was deceptively simplistic. On the superficial blush, it's pretty straightforward. One, four, five, bass, blues rock. But it was a little more subtle and... Kendall has a particular feel, and Al, Al had a difficult time getting into Kendall's feel. But my God, he got on a plane and came immediately and saved our asses. And for that, I will always be grateful to Al. And just to, uh, if, if I may, um, I was just going to make a suggestion, Steve. In, in this day and age of digital recording, where I have to chuckle because most of the time it seems that people now are, are trying to um, make things sound as analog and feel as analog as possible. Um, one little trick I found was if you're laying drum tracks first, if you can get your rhythm guitar player in front of your drummer and play with the drummer while he's playing his tracks, it definitely helps 
give a little bit of that natural push and pull that you want in a song. Because, you know, if we wanted things that were perfect all the time, we'd still be using those awful fucking drum tracks, which I couldn't wait to take my 12-gauge shotgun to. I mean, you know, the imperfection is the perfection in recording lies in knowing which imperfections to keep. And a recording that speaks to me is one that's just got a little bit of breathing in it, that there's a little bit of push as you go into the chorus, a little bit of pull as you come out and come into the verse, that it breathes and it's not regimented. If we wanted regimented music, we'd still be listening to fucking disco. First of all, disco's kind yeah. of fun. Um, what were the two drums back then? There were Lin drums, and what was the other one, the, the, the other sort of standard at the time? Lin and something with an S or something, right? I keep forgetting. Well, the Simmons. The Simmons. Simmons. Electric That's the one. Was... Simmons and Lin. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which <laughs> are, you know, Alex Finn hated them. them. Oh, the good old days. But all right, so, so, so Steve... When you come into a, a situation like Def Leppard or Dennis DeYoung, uh, you know, you had to come in in a replacement, how do you prepare? Do you sort of have that bravado and say, eh, don't worry, guys, I got this? Or how do you study it and approach it now? And the Def Leppard one is unique because there's two guitarists and you replace both. So you've had to learn sort of the, the, the different versions of each song's. Um, how, first of all, how challenging was that? But what is sort of your regiment to be stage ready? Well, again, you know, with Dennis DeYoung, I did the same thing that I did with Def Leppard. I filled in for both, uh, Jimmy Leahy and August oh. Adger, both my dear friends and fabulous guitar players. So how I approach it is very, very old school. I love, I do a thing that a lot of guys do, I think, where we pull out, I get an old school notebook, dollar store notebook, and I just label the front. I still, I post the pictures of the Def Leppard one. I have one for everything that I've ever done, whether it's Rock of Ages on Broadway, Dennis DeYoung, Jolyn Turner. And I do it like I did when I was young, man. I would just go through the song. And basically when time is not on your side to prepare a gig like this, you have to go for you have to listen to the song the way it's recorded or hopefully you'll get live versions you know leopard provided me with all the songs the live versions in pro tools and i was able to go through and make mixes of all of viv's parts and all of viv's vocals all of phil's parts all of phil's vocals so that made it a lot easier dennis it wasn't so easy but you just have to go through and and kind of you got to use your brain and, and kind of listen and ask, you know, if you don't have that Pro Tools mix of the live show, you have to go, well, what side is which guitar player? And then you find that out and you just break each song down. I just go through, first off, I go through the chord progressions because I go, worst case scenario, if I can get through the full song just playing basic chords, you're 50% there. You know, and you don't have to worry about all the, let's say, the bells and whistles and making sure you get every guitar little bit. And that's really the most important thing. You got to listen and go, how am I going to get myself through these sh these songs the simplest way that's going to sound the best? Because, you know, let's be real. When you're playing arenas or stadiums, 98 percent of the people aren't going to notice every little 16th note arpeggio that you miss. And I think Alan, you know, with Al Petrelli, I'm sure Al did the same thing to where he did, you know, the basics to get him through. And what you said about Great White kind of holds true a little bit with Def Leppard. When you listen to the stuff, it sounds a lot simpler than it really is. And the same thing with the stick stuff. 
I got to tell you, man, learning the Def Leppard catalog and learning the Sticks Dennis DeYoung catalog, that stuff was a hell of a lot harder than I ever imagined it would be. And this is coming from a guy who's a devoted Van Halen, Randy Rhodes fan who knows all that stuff. And then here I am playing like the Def Leppard stuff going, tripping up on things that sound simple. And I was going, man, this stuff is a lot harder than it sounds. Right. Let me ask you this. Since you're playing the Styx catalog and the Def Leppard catalog, and then you're going to go record Tokyo Motor Fist and, and, and other albums, does it change your playing? I mean, have you learned stuff? Because you, you just said, listen, it's a lot more complicated than you think. Uh, does it does it alter the way you play? Have you learned from it? Do, do you incorporate some of that into Tokyo Motor Fist or Trickster or, or Eric Martin Band? Everything. I mean, look, I've been with Def Leppard now in the wings for eight years. So everything that I do, I mean, I, I lived and breathed that music and had to be ready at a moment's notice. I'm always on call with them. So it's it's part of my it always has been part of my DNA. And I say this all the time. It always helps to fill in for a band that is one of your favorites. I mean, Def Leppard, hands down, is my top three. You know, it's Kiss, Van Halen, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, you know, after that. So you know, that always is a huge help because I, whether I played the songs or not, I knew every song. It was in my blood because I've been listening to the stuff since I discovered Leopard in 1980. Uh, and, you know, of course, Leopard was such a huge influence on me starting Trickster at such a young age because I looked at Rick Allen when I read about Def Leppard the first time. I read the drummer's 16 years old and I was like, Oh my God, if he's 16, I can do this. I'm going to start my own band at 12. And that's what I did. You know, I think before that, I thought there was, you know, it was like you had to be at least 18 to start a rock band, you know, and I learned from, from Rick Allen and Def Leppard that you didn't have to be 18 or 21 to go out on tour. So, you know, huge inspiration there. Um, you know, so with the Dennis DeYoung thing it was different because I didn't grow up a huge Sticks fan. I, I liked the music. I appreciated it, but it wasn't my bag. And so learning that catalog, I became such a huge fan and learned the brilliance of the songwriting of Dennis DeYoung and the brilliance of Sticks. And Sticks and Def Leppard over the last five years have become an integral part of everything I do. So if you listen to the new Tokyo Motor Fist record, Lions, you're going to hear, listen to Monster and Me. There's a huge Def Leppard Mutt Lang influence on that. Listen to my favorite track on the record, the title track, Lions, which Dennis DeYoung played the keyboard solo. That is influence. I wouldn't have written that song had it not been for playing with Dennis for the last five years and playing with Def Leppard because it's given me such a different set of colors to work with playing shapes and playing chord progressions and playing arpeggios that I never would have played that I incorporated and the confidence level as a songwriter, performer, singer, guitar player that those bands have given to me. Uh, it enabled me to just go, you know what? I'm going to write a song that's six and a half minutes and I don't give a fuck what anybody says. I want to do something bold unique much like bohemian rhapsody i make the joke that lions is my bohemian rhapsody you know i never wrote a song with that many chord changes before playing with dennis playing with def leppard has given me that confidence to be able to say you know what i can do this 
and I'm going to make it as great as it can possibly be. Yeah, well, it turned out great. Uh, one thing I'll, I'll say, uh, since you mentioned Trickster, it is the 30th anniversary of Trickster, and of course, the great song "One in a Million." Um, I know there were plans for 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 the band to go celebrate this somehow, or at least members of the band, maybe not the the whole band. Uh, obviously, COVID put that on hold. But but how do you sort of celebrate the 30th anniversary now? I mean, do you do a, a lockdown video? Do you do a, a special streaming show? H- how do you sort of look back and, 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 and say, hey, man, 30 years? Well, first off, I just turned 50 a week and a half ago. So we're celebrating that and the 30th anniversary of the first Trickster record. First I got to go is how the fuck did I get so old? And uh, God help me. But, hold uh, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Let me stop you right there, Stevie. <laughs> hold on a minute. Somebody I know whose name I won't mention who wears a top hat yes. called me up on his 49th birthday and had a total meltdown on me because he was going to be 50 on his next birthday. And how did that happen? And how is he going to deal with it? And I told him this, I said, Slash, if I could have one decade to relive, it would be my fifties. It'll be the best combination of body, mind, soul, and ability that you will experience in your life. And now look at what he's done in his fifties. Of course, you know, the other side of this is when I was 40, I went and had a thorough medical. Um, I was under stress and anxiety all the time, uh, dealing with GNR and so on, but uh, came, out, came out of the, uh, um, the tests really well. And the doctor looked at me and he said, you should basically be like this until you're 60. And of course I was stupid and turned around and I asked, well, what happens at 60? To which the doctor replied, well, it's all downhill from there. (laughs) But your 50s will be the best time, Stevie, of your life, I guarantee it. That's right, and by the way, the decade of your of, of your of your greatest accomplishment. <laughs> of course it will be in and, and and Alan if you had actually managed Bon Jovi and uh, n- listened to David Geffen you wouldn't have had all that anxiety. See? I'm telling you that was a bad move to not take John's call. I'm telling you. I'd have had even I'd have had even more anxiety. But you know, I've had enough money. control freaks to deal with in my life. <laughs> Well, hey, you, go. you know, you can uh, you can manage the uh, Trickster reunion tour next year. That'll be fun. Um, yeah. But 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 so what is the plan, though, for the for this 30th? I mean, so you turned 50. Happy birthday. Um, well, thank you so much. As, jo- as Joe Elliott so eloquently told me, he said, welcome to hell, man. <laughs> but hey, man, what I can say one thing and Alan, you'll appreciate that I'm at my 50th birthday. I'm also celebrating 15 years, 15 months of sobriety. Uh, I finally entered a new phase well in my rock mania and extremely happy about that. So I do agree with you. My father said to me, my dad's 85 and, you know, probably my, my biggest fan. And he's also my idol. He said to me, Steve, are you ready for the second half of your life? Are you ready for the third and fourth quarters? You know, he's in a big sports athlete and, 
you know, so everything is in sports terms. But and I said to him, Dad, you know what, man, these next 50 years and I'm hoping I get to live another 50 years. But the, the, the first 50 was the, the first half was just the warm up. Now we're really and I think honestly, the best is yet to come. And again, with this new album, I feel like it's my best work to date. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm so clear now and operating at a top notch level. And uh, so getting back to Trickster, here we are 30 years later. Wow. I guess without Trickster, I wouldn't be here talking to both of you guys. So that's an honor right there. And look, what we accomplished was, you know, the 1% of all musicians we got to do. Every dream I ever had came true a thousand times over. Um, I'm trying to, I'm working with Universal. Stevie, do Stevie, do you know do you know what the, the approximate odds were of success once you got a contract in LA? I I really don't think about I this. Go by like one percent. Think about thing. this for a moment. It, it was think about this for a moment. But there was an attorney who turned around to me one day and said, "Once you get a contract, your odds of success are approximately a thousand to one." So for you to have achieved what you've achieved already in your life is tremendous. But then you're a really good player. Yeah, oh, I mean, is? yeah, look, and I, I say it all the time, big guy. I'm, I'm certainly one of the luckiest guys in the world. I work my ass to be, work my ass off to be here. Still practice like I was 13 years old, singing, writing, playing guitar. But so I appreciate the kind words, my man. And uh, you know, and likewise, we'll get back because I, I got some questions for you, Alan, that we're gonna, we're gonna grill you on in a little while. Well, but, uh, well so go, for, go for it now. But just real quick on Trickster, if you haven't checked out uh, Human Era, a new audio machine, the last two releases, just fantastic stuff. Human Era, in particularly, was was super, super strong, melodic, fun. There was a Road of a Thousand Dreams that was re-recorded. It was just. Just you know. Anyway, we we need more. But okay, let's uh, let us put Alan on the on the hot seat. Why not? This is like a on the it's like a Johnny Carson we, sketch or something. This is great. Without a doubt. And aren't we celebrating today the release of the debut Guns N' Roses album that changed so many lives, and I'm sure changed Alan's life forever. Yes. For for fans, we are recording this on July 21st, and of course the album came out on July 21st, uh, 1987, I believe it was. So yes. Happy anniversary, Alan. Yes, in the last millennium. Oh, thank you. <laughs> bring, bring back the memories and all the anxieties again. Did you call Axel? That's all. That's all. I, that's my only question. No, and he hasn't called me either. Fair enough. But yeah. uh, I will give the floor to Steve. I will hit the mute button. Steve, you're on. You're. Well, I wanted to just ask Alan, you know, because I, I just love hearing these stories because, you know. I knew what it was like when Trickster, when we started getting that momentum. And I just want to ask Alan, you know, Alan, what was the coolest part of the Guns N' Roses ride? Was it the before they hit it, when you knew that the momentum, when you could see the song going up the charts, when you'd get the radio reports, when you knew that the engine was really starting to rev was that the most exciting part of the Guns N' Roses experience? Or was it, let's say, when Sweet Child of Mine finally broke and all hell broke loose? I'm curious to hear what your take is on that, because I have my own opinions on, on, on my career when, when Trickster 
started taking off. And then when, once we finally, let's say hit the peak. So I'm curious to see what your take is on the, on the guns and roses. And again, happy anniversary. And I hope that uh, you take some time to enjoy the good times, forget about the stress and the anxiety. Well, for me, um, particularly with guns, um, the coolest moments for me were gigs that made me proud. Um, the Ritz, which I think was February 2nd, 1988. That was a cool moment because that was, uh, that was the band exhibiting that they had a sense of themselves, of their power and of their potential at an early and critical moment. And that was an amazing night. Um, the fact that I had to spend, um, and I had both bands on, on that bill that night, and I had to spend uh, the interim, the interval, finding the right bandana for his nibs because he was having a freak out. Um, like everybody, uh, Axel has stage fright. Um, there was uh, one day at Farm Aid, I was standing next to Don Henley and he was a little bit jittery. So I, I made a wise-ass comment, a dumb wise-ass comment to him about, oh, you, you got nerves, Don. You know, hard for me to imagine that Don Henley with his history would have nerves. And he turned around and he looked at me and he said, you all don't have butterflies in your stomach before you go on stage, then you don't know what you're about to have to try and do. And, I, you know, everybody gets it. Um, but it was the gigs. I mean, there was one in Philadelphia that I remember that was just incendiary. And those were the coolest moments. A lot of the rest of it was stress and was anxiety. Um, I knew what I was getting into when I signed a contract with that band. I'd done my research. I'd turned them down twice or turned down being part of the uh, um, cattle call for a manager twice. And I knew it was going to be stressful and difficult and in hindsight I can say that my sense of the carefree in being involved in rock and roll evaporated in September of 1986 when I signed that contract um, the other thing is that it's a great privilege to be involved with something that is that momentous I try to avoid the words avoid the word success because I think success is usually a figment of an envious mind. But with moments like being number one in Billboard for the first time, I'd sit there in my office and look at it and go, I thought I'd feel different. This isn't going to change my life. And it's really just a number. It doesn't matter. Because um, ultimately what matters is what you write, what you record, and how good it is, and whether it stands the test of time. So if you have songs that are being played on the radio now, then you've done it. You've achieved it. Your life has been worth, worthy and worthwhile because those songs provide at the least entertainment and sometimes maybe a little bit of insight and sometimes a little bit of fortitude. You know, when I was a kid growing up in England, um, I started to feel more and more alienated 
in my school and in my family. And the only things that made sense to me were the records that spoke to me. So there's a profound value in it. And to contribute that to the world is better than becoming somebody at a, a military school or going and fighting in Afghanistan or beating up protesters. It's a better contribution to life. So you should feel really, really good about that, Stevie. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And, and of course, music but, does provide salvation sometimes, too. Yeah. Oh, of course it does. I mean, it all, it's, you know, kind of mute me oh, as oh, I say. I, Mitch. Yeah. Mitch, I thought you were going to say sometimes you get kissed by salvation. <laughs> <laughs> You do. You do get kissed by salvation. And, and then sometimes you so, get inspired like by the scorpions. But all right, Steve, uh, go ahead. So the other question I had is, Alan, when, when they finished recording Appetite for Destruction and you got the mask, when you guys mastered it, I think George Marino mastered it. Were you there with them when they, when they, when they mastered, finished mastering the record? Of course I was there. You know, I... Sam Strait, I was going to be there. Um, for one thing, George was the master of mastering. And to be in his, and I'll call it laboratory, his sonic laboratory, and have him work on something was always enlightening and a little bit of an education. And, you know, you know when you're recording somebody has to hold the vision. So in a studio, if I was producing, yes, I'd have an open ear. Yes, I'd want people to feel that they'd been able to make, make their observations and contributions. But basically, I felt the responsibility of holding the vision. So there was a little part of me that was like, well, yeah, you can make that observation, but it's wrong and I don't care because I have to hold the vision on this. The minute you walked into George Marino's room, it was like going and getting your homework graded. And it was the one moment that in any recording process, I'd feel intimidated as I handed over the half inch to George. And the most magical thing that George would ever say to me was, ah, you pretty much got that. All I'm going to do is add one dB at 16K to put a little bit more air in there, and there you go. And yeah. that would be like I got an A on my essay. <laughs> sure. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, when you heard the record for the first time, did you have any idea the effect it would have and the fact that Guns N' Roses, I mean, I put Guns N' Roses as one of the, you know, top 10, top five biggest rock bands ever, you know, I mean, and that record was groundbreaking for the time, especially, and it certainly changed the landscape of the whole 80s hard rock thing. Did you have any idea how sort of culture changing and musical landscape changing that record would be? Oh, good God, absolutely not. Um, my concerns were immediate and in detail. And in terms of the record itself, um, I had to dismiss uh, the first person that Geffen wanted to um, produce the record and sit Tommy down and Tommy suit out down and say, listen, you know, this is what we've got to do here. And we've got to find somebody who 
can conform to this philosophy. And the philosophy that Tom and I had was let Guns N' Roses be Guns N' Roses. And we did not want them being smoothed out. Um, you know, Mutt Langer is brilliant, but Mutt Langer is probably the perfect example of who should not make a Guns N' Roses record and couldn't make a Guns N' Roses record. Uh, we, wanted, we wanted the spirit of the band and the feel of the band to be uncompromised. And once I got um, the final mastering, I knew I was going to be in, in for a really tough time at radio. Radio, AOR, wouldn't just not touch us. They called us out as being leprous and, and, a, and a pox on the world when we first put the record out and pinched their noses for the aroma. Um, and having um, that perception from the get-go, uh, the strategy I had for breaking the band was entirely based on press and getting to England first and getting a relationship, uh, either good or bad, but a relationship of noise with the British press because I felt that we had to break out of England first. You know, England's a small island. It's easier to make a mark there than it is on continental USA, where you have so many radio stations you have to pull in. Um, you have to get through the MTV door. In England, you can get to your audience more directly and more quickly if you're smart about it. So that's why all my initial work an effort was through England first. And of course, you know, I'm no genius. I just sit there and watch what other people do. I watch uh, Tom Petty being a star in England while they were still playing clubs in the USA. Jimi Hendrix sure. broke out, out, out of England. J.J. Cale broke out of England. Um, the Pretenders, who were a London band, but have got an American swagger to them because of Chrissy. Uh, you know, they were on fire in England long before they were known in, in, in the USA. So there was, there was no sense of, oh, this is going to be a slam dunk and it's going to go over the fences easily. And if you think like that, you're, you're probably going to set yourself up for a problem. You've got to um, hope for the best and expect the worst, like in most situations, and plan that way. So, no. I didn't think it was going to change the world. Um, I was just happy that when Eddie Rosenblatt took me out, he was president of Gavin. He took me out for a lunch just before, before Christmas in 87. And this was the guy who wanted to drop the band before they even started recording. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you, you, you've done a good job here, kiddo. And it's time for you to bring the band back and start thinking about a second album. And I, would, I was apoplectic. You know, we were at a quarter million sales at that point with no radio airplay and no MTV. And I looked at it and I said, there's no way I'm going to do that, Eddie. I said, we're, we're going to keep playing because let me tell you something. If we get just a smidgen of airplay or just a little bit of MTV airplay, where do you think we're going to be? Because we're already at a quarter of a million. So over that holiday, we managed, Tom and I managed to turn the company's head around and support us going forward. And of course, you know, by March they were gold and on April 7th they were platinum. And then I don't know if you know the legend of Sisyphus, the guy who has to push the rock up the mountain all the time. 
Well, we got the rock to the top of the mountain and then it started rolling down the other side and we had to run like hell to try and keep up with it. Um, yeah. You know, then it became something bizarre. Um, I, I remember the first time I went, oh, things have changed. Slash and I were in, in a town car driving down Manhattan, going to Electric Ladyland studio. And as we were coming up to, I think it's 6th or 4th Street or 8th Street, and we're about to turn left. There were people who were starting to run after the car because they saw Slash in it. And at that moment, I knew our worlds were upside down. For sure. That's incredible, man. And I got to tell you, I remember the first time hearing Guns N' Roses when we were out at one of the clubs that we used to play at. There was this great club in, in, in New Jersey called Studio One, which is, I think, one of the clubs that we got signed out of. And a lot of the East Coast bands played there. And I remember the first time I heard Guns N' Roses, Welcome to the Jungle. And I still have the vision in my head. And it was, for me, the moment that I knew that they were going to be that they were going to be something. And it was just a funny thing because it's quintessential Jersey. And you'll probably laugh at this. But I was standing there in the club. And I heard this song. It was the beginning of Welcome to the Jungle. And I'm like, oh, man, it's fucking cool. It's kind of got the Van Halen. It's got the Eddie Ain't Talking About Love with the delay on the guitar. And then it kicked in. Right. And I remember that I looked over and I saw these two beautiful girls who were total <laughs> 80s Jersey girls. And they were dancing like, again, not to go back to the disco era, but they were dancing like they were on Dance Fever with Denny Terrio to Guns N' Roses, Welcome to the Jungle. And when that riff kicked in and I saw these girls dancing, I said to myself, I first off, I go, who the fuck is this band? This is cool as hell. That guitar sound just blew me away. And then it was right after that when I got the record, when I, you know, after discovering who they were. But that vision was that thing where I said to myself, I knew these guys were going to be huge. Did I know they were going to be one of the biggest bands in rock history? And of course, you know, look at what they've done. A band who kind of self-imploded in the 90s and then came back. What is it? 25 years after they imploded is it 25 years when they got back together with with slash and duff and Axel? something like that okay well 2016 so yeah 2025 yeah okay to be able to come back and basically right out of the gate sell out stadiums all around the world and make back all the money that they lost in the 90s and make more money than they ever did in their career and be bigger than they were. That's a testament. But that moment for me in North Newark, New Jersey, which is not a pretty part of New Jersey kids, to see that and that site in a CD rock and roll club and to see these girls, which I tell you, they were like Bon Jovi chicks and they were dancing like, uh, I couldn't imagine what I was seeing. It was still, it's still etched in my memory. And for me, that was the moment that I knew that gun, this band is a real deal and that I fell in love with them and I knew they were going to take off. That's a great observation, Stevie. Um, if the girls are there, the boys will be there. I was working with this band that I'd signed um, that had been thrown out of every record company in LA. And I was working at a tiny little distribution company down in the South Bay 
of LA. Um, so, you know, bottom of the barrel, we were under the barrel. And their manager came in and uh, brought a record. And um, one of the owners of the company asked me to evaluate it. And I listened to it and I thought, well, it's a fucking mess, but there's a couple of great rock and roll songs on here. So I persuaded the company to sign them. And uh, they did, uh, the next thing they did was, I think it was three shows at at the Whiskey. And then they had a, a show at the Glendale Civic. And when I got to the Glendale Civic, I looked around and I looked at the girls there who were all stunning, blonde, Southern California girls wearing clothes that I can only describe as pre-ravaged. And I looked at that and I went, hello, we're definitely onto something here. And that was Motley, you know, and it was, that was my observation. I saw the girls and I went, we're onto something here. We can do something. Certainly. I mean, that goes back to the Beatles. I mean, you know, geez. And, and even early, and all oh, rock yeah. and roll, you know, with Elvis. So the girls started it and then the guys will come. But, you know, it was just a funny story. And again, it was like a scene out of one of these movies that you see. It could have been out of, you know, if we did an 80s version of Almost Famous to me, that would be that part in the club where all of a sudden, you know, welcome to the jungle. What did you start. Did let me let me ask yeah. you, what did you think of the Motley movie? Oh, well, I thought it was fun, you know? I mean, it definitely... <laughs> it was, it, I, cer- I mean, it was definitely a vanilla version of it, you know, because you were there and I was there for a little bit of it. And, you know, look, man, Motley's one of my favorite bands. And, you know, it, it's... I thought, hey, look, anytime, I'm a sucker for all those movies. I just watched the Runaways movie the other night. I love all things rockumentary, documentary, behind the music, all of the books. And, you know, I just can't get enough of it. So, you know... I love some, I love, I love, uh, I love the Hollywood adaptations of the, of the way these, these things come out sometimes. Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad you're amused, but you're an East coast guy, but God, I hate <laughs> most Hollywood movies. Um, if you haven't seen it, do take in the Netflix ZZ top documentary. Um, that's got a bit of style to it. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I've seen, I watched that. I love that. And that was cool because I never knew much about the early ZZ Top. So to learn that those guys, you know, been playing together, Frank, uh, Frank and uh, Dusty, they, those guys have been playing together since they were uh, 15 years old, you know, and Billy, Billy yep. came in a little bit later. And the fact that they're still together, the three of those guys, a testament. And, uh, you know, their dedication, Bill awesome. Ham, you know, unbelievable. Awesome. Yeah. Great stuff. I just, and we call them a ZZ Top up here, by the way. ZZ Top. But yeah. ZZ Top. I just watched the other great one the other day who was somebody I didn't really know about who now I'm in love with, which is Susie Quattro. And I never knew how massive Susie Quattro is around the world. I remember her as Leather Tuscadero on Happy Days when I was a kid, not realizing that Susie was a worldwide, huge in Australia, huge in Europe, huge in Asia. 
I mean, unreal. And what a great documentary on her as well. So yeah, that's the, my affinity for, and I could talk to you, Alan, and someday we are going to break bread, have dinner and have some coffee. And I want to hear about all the really good juicy details that we can't talk about on the air, if you know what I mean. Oh, yes. We, it would be we, my we pleasure. I will look forward to that. But it'll have to be in Arizona because Alan's going nowhere. It's not moving. Man on his mountain. This is true. <laughs> it's okay. I'm all, I'm all for it. The, uh, the next time uh, Def Leppard rolls into town, he'll, he'll put you on the guest list and uh, you'll eat their catering. It'll be perfect. Nobody's going to pay for anything. It's fantastic. It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it would be good to, come, good to see Def Leppard and come and say hello to the Leprechaun again. Yeah, the Leprechaun. Of course. But uh, on that, of course, the Tokyo Motor Fist, uh, Lions, available now. And if you get the Japanese version like I did, you get a Tokyo Motor Fist button and a bonus track, which who doesn't want bonus track? We love our bonus tracks. But uh, Steve, Alan, toujours un plaisir, always a pleasure. There we go. Any more questions or are we done? Steve, 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 a pleasure. Always good to talk with you. Yes, you likewise, Alan, man. I'm always, always thinking about you. And uh, again, like I said, thank you for the stories. I know the listeners will love, you know, your little, your little take on the, that little old band from Hollywood, Guns N' Roses, those little stories that you tell about those, uh, those, those feisty cats. But we, uh, I appreciate it. And again, I can't wait till the, we can actually hang and really get into the nitty gritty of it all. No, I agree. I'll be in tote. Yeah, it, it, it'll be, it's, yeah, we need to get out there. We need to get to, to shows, but hopefully, uh, you know, well, COVID will pass and then we can get to it. But uh, anyway, on that, uh, merci, gentlemen, uh, a great pleasure. And we did an hour. Can you believe that? Fantastic. I, I can certainly believe it because you know what? We're good together. The three amigos. There we go. All right, guys. All the there best. You go. All my love to your, all my Have love a great to day, your Stevie. You got it. Thanks, Alan. Bye. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Here's Paul Stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand. Some people might have a little rock and roll pneumonia. Ugh, not even cold gin will kill those germs. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon.